Hello, hello, and welcome to the Canadian Football Countdown. I'm Ryan Coop alongside Michael Garrell. We are a proud member of the Canadian Football Podcast Network. This episode of the podcast is brought to you from Treaty One Territory, traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Ojukree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. Well, we are down to two teams left fighting for the 108th Grey Cup this coming Sunday. Hard to believe the 2021 season ends this weekend. Uh, we had two great games for the division finals this past weekend. We'll go through those today and, of course, tee up the big matchup between the hometown Hamilton Tiger Cats and the visiting Winnipeg Blue Bombers, a rematch of the Grey Cup from two years ago, the last one played. It should be an interesting game. Now we bring in the other side of the podcast here, uh, my good friend Michael Garrell. Mike, how are you doing today? Not bad, not bad. It's ready for the game on Sunday. Uh, with maybe a little bit uh, of an emotional roller coaster last week, but uh, yeah, no, all things are dead. The home team's uh, doing very well, still alive, so can't complain. For sure. Let's get into talking about the games from this past weekend. We'll start with the East final and then go to the West final. Uh, but as a, as a whole for these two games, you know, I, I feel like we could almost take, go back, take last week's podcast, copy and paste like the first 35 minutes of it and change the team names. And it's the same thing, because I feel like in a weird twisted way, these two games played out exactly the same way as the ones from the division semifinals did in the East. You had you know, another, the other team Tate, you know, put a lot of pressure on early, but not put points on the board. Then you had Hamilton storm back to come and win the game in the West. It was a bunch of turnovers. And oddly enough, the team that turned the ball over the most won the game. It's hard not to draw these similarities to the week before. And I think you texted me this, Mike, and we'll get into this more. So I think with the, uh, the West final, but uh, last week's podcast, we called it the, the title was it's a beautiful or a beautiful mess. I think this is a beautiful mess. The sequel. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm still speechless. Uh, the way that all transpired, it's, 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 you play that game, I think 10 times. Uh, or even a hundred times, and ninety-nine times out of a hundred, you lose the turnover battle. You lose the game, and oh, this is that one time, right? Well, let's start off with Hamilton and Toronto. Now, there has been a lot of non-directly related to the sixty minutes on the football field to talk about with this game that we haven't talked about. Uh, so let's start off with the big conversation leading up to the game of McLeod Bethel Thompson uh, being, you know, told by MLSC to go to a Raptors game to promote the Argos playing in the East final and try to get ticket sales a couple days before the game break, breaking COVID protocols and not the only one, a couple other big name players. Breaking COVID protocols, which means he needed they needed to quarantine for four days, which was going to be after the East final was going to be played, meaning, sorry, you're not playing in this game. Now, the CFL uh, fan base, you can imagine, was up in flames over this because this was insane. 
And, uh, you know, they, they ended up issuing a statement to CFL saying, okay, well, as long as these guys, you know, times have changed since when we first made the protocols. Now, if they issued to get a couple negative tests and quarantine until the game, they can still play on Sunday, uh, which they ended up doing. But, uh, before we talk about the game itself, your thoughts on that whirlwind situation we had last week. Um, my, my thoughts. I guess similar to a lot of people in the sense that, you know, you made the rules for a reason, you better follow them. But somebody did or did not, depending on who you asked for, um, didn't do a very good job of updating those protocols when, you know, the, the time came. And... You know, there's lots of blame to go around. Uh, I saw an interesting letter from the CFLPA who, for lack of better term, blamed me Argos on the situation. Um, you know, it's concerning to you that, or to me, that one of your teams doesn't appear to know what the current protocols are, uh, whether they are or are not outdated. Uh Protocols were agreed to by both sides. Um, the interesting part of this is, do I believe that he that he should have played? Yes. Do I believe that he broke the rule? Yes. So I, I know I'm contradicting myself, but I think the only way for me to properly explain it is I see it both ways. If you can get one of the better players on your team, in the game, he deserves to be in the game. But if he broke the protocol doing so, and you basically made an example out of every other player in the league that has not followed these protocols, well, then maybe he shouldn't play. So I don't know. It, it, it's a mess no matter what way you look at this. And this uh, one was not a beautiful mess, by the way. Well, I, I don't think this quantifies as a beautiful mess. Uh, this is an ugly mess. Um, but anyway, no, there's plenty of blame to go around. Um, the more I see uh, and read things, the more I realize things were outdated and things should have been looked at. But at the same time, we are should have known the protocols. At the same time, I don't feel like that should unnecessarily be held out of the game. Because I think I go to I go to football games to see the best players on the field, and McCraw Bethel Thompson is their quarterback, and that's just the way it is. So, the long and short of it is, I see the issue on both sides, and I don't have an answer one way or another. Yeah, that. I'm I'm just happy I wasn't the one who had to make this decision because. Uh, I think even just when you and I were talking about it as it was going down throughout the week, texting back and forth, uh, even my, my own opinion, I was going back and forth on this, you know, on one hand, um, you know, it's unfair to some of the other players who have had to sit out this season due to breaking protocols. You look at Ja'Garrett Davis right on the other side of this matchup, had that one game earlier this year uh, as well. And I think Kenny Stafford in Ottawa did too. So 
you have the, a couple of situations where there's precedent and it's just kind of like very contradictory if you don't follow it uh, and, and do the same thing with these guys here. At the same time, I think the protocols were outdated. It was a fully vaccinated event. Uh, these guys were presumably fully vaccinated themselves if they were attending. And, you know, I, I, I think the solution they ended up with of, you know, making sure they quarantined a couple of days, had some negative tests, was a good outcome for the solution. I have to wonder though, like this is, I, I put full blame here on MLSE, I, I, the way they handled this, you know, trying to do the cross promotion, like you should be double checking before you do this. And I think the most interesting thing to me out of this whole situation, well, there's two, two parts to me. One, if Toronto would have won this game, I could only imagine the reaction in Hamilton if these guys were allowed to play in this controversial situation and Toronto ended up coming out winning the game on, on the hands of McLeod Bethel Thompson playing the best game of his life. Um, that didn't end up being the case necessarily, but I can only imagine and fear what the reaction would have been. Um, the other side of things is I'm interested to see how this plays out with McLeod Bethel Thompson's time in Toronto, because just a couple of weeks ago, you trade Nick Arbuckle uh, away and say, this is going to be your guy. MBT is going to be the franchise starter at quarterback, the guy we want going forward. And then you go all of a sudden and put him in a situation to try to promote one of your other teams this week that almost makes him miss the biggest game of his life. If that's me, is that really a team, you know, am I really going to, might put maybe a bit of doubts in my mind about being the franchise guy going forward here. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, to be honest with you, if we did just, pass to the end of the game for a minute because I think this ties into my question with, or sorry my answer with regarding the franchise kind of died um, the way McLeod Bethel Thompson acted at the end of the game pushing the camera and the whole brouhaha that happened in the stands afterwards and I'm not saying he's responsible for that but no, he's not but I do hold them responsible for the camera episode. Absolutely. Uh, that to me as a media producer slash broadcaster slash camera operator slash guy in the industry, I can't even tell you what I would do if a player came up to one of my cameras like that and shoved one of my guys who, quite honestly, the camera guy's just doing his job and getting reaction uh, around the field. Um, we're always told as athletes or when we were athletes, and even as broadcasters, assume every camera or every microphone is live at one point or another while you're making the statement, while you're talking, or while you're shooting. And, you know, this was a case of not much the camera died to the done. He's just doing his job, right? You get reaction from the losing team, uh, walking off the field. Um, 
but there is no excuse uh, for McCraw Bethel Thompson, your franchise quarterback, uh, to push a Tamar guy around uh, for no reason, for just doing his job. Um, there are better ways to handle your frustration. And furthermore, the incident in the stands makes me wonder a lot of things about the Argo franchise as a whole. And, you know, there there are going to have to be questions asked about, you know, I don't want to say the credibility of the franchise because that would be harsh, but win or loss, you don't do what they did on two, on two fronts no matter what. And it would really disappoint me if, you know, the leader of my franchise was right in the middle of pushing the camera. Um, and that is something that I would not tolerate, number one, as a media uh, person, or number two, as a general manager. Uh, I, I don't know. And I think this is kind of my hesitation with McLeod Bethel Thompson is it's the interceptions going way back. Now, granted, he had a good year, but when things don't go well, that's when the true character of certain individuals come out. And, you know, I have very little sympathy to say, oh, it's a heat-of-the-moment situation. Pushing a camera died. And pushing the camera down by extension is unacceptable no matter what. And if if I'm Mike Pinball Clements, I'm darn serious about potentially moving on from McLeod Bethel Thompson. I don't care if it's one isolated incident. The guy's character came out. I don't like it. I will not like it. I will not condone it. And I'm not sure that I want the model of my franchise to be pushing camera people around, incidental or not. It's, it's not plain and simple for me. Well said on that one. And you kind of touched on, you know, the big situation that blew up at the end of the game here in the stands, as well as supposedly uh, Hamilton fans spitting beer, I think it was, on the players as they're trying to walk out of the tunnel. The players react. They start going out into the the concourse and start uh, brawling with some of these fans. Uh, it's an ugly mess all around. Then you get, uh, I believe it's vice president of player personnel. John Murphy is out there and he's fighting with people and getting in an altercation and iterating uh, offensive slurs at people, uh, which we know now he's been suspended, you know, indefinitely by the team, by the CFL. Uh, actually, sorry, uh, for his involvement in the situation. Like, unacceptable behavior all the way around. First of all, from a fan perspective, you know, instigating that from the players losing their cool, from John Murphy and his actions. I think we can sum this all whole altercation up as just unacceptable behavior all ways around. And it's, it's honestly, Brian, it's, Yes, I pin that mostly on the fan, but through the, but through the uh, whatever it is that the player, which it, which in turn I just angered the player, and the player 
came up into the stands. I'm going to say the same thing. Under no circumstances can you go up into the stands and start violating with the fans in the stands. And it's just not a good look. If every single football player took every single thing that was said about them over the course of a game, think about it. Winnipeg and Saskatchewan, the Saskatchewan fans probably hurling profanities like no tomorrow at Blue Bomber players in the Labor Day game. And our, you know, fans here, you know, giving it to the riders. If everybody took offense to every little kind of scenario, players will be going into the stand every single game. The, the fact of the matter is, if you're a player, this is what you signed up for. You kind of have to have fit skin in this industry and not go into the stand and go after uh, this individual. Granted, there's, I think, a mistake on both sides, on the part of the fan and on the part of the player. I understand the player's perspective, but the moral of the story in this whole discussion for the last five minutes comes down to two words for me, self-control. And there was none of that in both of these instances, and it's unfortunate. Well said. Well, should we talk? We should probably talk about actual football, because uh, I think that's a little more fun to talk about now that we got through these situations. Um, this game, 27-19, the Ticats end up taking it. It's a tale of two halves. Uh, first half, Toronto leads 12-0. Uh, and in the second half, uh, Hamilton outscoring them 27 to seven, um, quite the change of events. And it's much the same way as last week against Montreal, as I mentioned. And I said this early in the game, as you know, Toronto was playing well here. It seemed Hamilton couldn't get anything going. The Argos were moving the ball pretty efficiently. I think at halftime, Bethel Thompson was a, a something like 11 of 14 for 140 yards or so. I could be slightly off on there, and it seemed like things were going well, but they weren't putting the points on the board. They put up just field goals in that first half, four field goals, no touchdowns to show for it, and they let Hamilton stick around, and Hamilton turned on the Jets in the second half, and you absolutely cannot do that, and they've shown that two weeks in a row. Well, here's the thing. Um, you know, you had four... I don't want to say chip shot field goals. To me, if you're inside the 20-yard line or inside the 10-yard line and you're taking eight-yard field goals, to me, you're better off almost going for it on third down and taking your chances and really kind of putting the boots to this football team. Because I, I was watching with a group of people on my way, actually waiting to go to the last final. And I said to the people that I was watching with, oh boy, I sure hope all those field goals don't come back to bite uh, Toronto in the, in the rear. Because you had a chance to put your stamp on this football game, and you didn't. And, you know, the, it leads to... For every two field goals, you know, you're a minus one for every touchdown you give up, basically. So, 
to me, I, I'm surprised Toronto wasn't more in a progressive fainting, mo- fainting mode about, you know, okay, we're inside the 10-yard line and on two of the field goals for sure. You know, should we look at going for it and really having a chance to put, you know, a stamp on this football game given the fact that, you know, we're in control. And it's one of those scenarios, unfortunately, where, you know, you allow to take the points. Uh, you leave the door open uh, to a combat, aided by some very nice play by a Hamilton quarterback who came in in relief. Um, you know, this is just a scenario of you have a team on the ropes. Uh, you couldn't take advantage, and and much the same in in the West Final as well, uh, for very different reasons. And I, I like to use the line: one team's playing checkers while the other team's playing chess. Well, that's kind of the way to shut out. If you know chess is the field goals and checkers is the touchdowns, or vice versa, you. You know, it's Hamilton finding a way to stay in the game. Their defense holding a lot of short fields uh, for not allowing Toronto to get in the end zone. Uh, there was a big, bad drop uh, on one of the plays that led to a field roll, as I recall, uh, right through the hands. Um, but, again, it's I am shocked with the progressive coaching that Toronto has that there just wasn't a little bit more aggression when it comes to, okay, maybe forcing the issue with a couple touchdowns. I understand you want to take the points, but a a team like Hamilton, I think you need to be a little bit more on the aggressive side. Yeah, and I think that could be a problem we drop from Toronto all season long. You know, Boris Beattie had made six of seven field goal attempts in this game. I think probably him, honestly, more than most quarterbacks this year. How often have we seen a four, five field goal game out of him, which to me spells, okay, they're getting the ball down the field, but they're not capitalizing on it. And, you know, to wrap up the Argos season here, before, and then we'll talk about the Hamilton side of this victory. Um, I, I think overall, this was a good season for Toronto. I think it was very impressive, you know, to be able to come out and win the East after what we saw from them the season before. They made a lot of changes in the offseason, you know, new coach, um, you know, basically overhauled the entire roster. And they dealt with a lot of injuries throughout this year. I think they have been one of the teams that has dealt with the most, at least that, that I could think of. Uh, certainly there are other ones like Saskatchewan that have probably dealt with plenty more, but this has been a team where it's been quite the constant rotation. And I think we've seen some uh, intriguing players come out of the, you know, the opportunities to play this year. I look at Curly Gittins Jr. Who led the team in receiving in the playoffs. Uh, once again, uh, if you, in this game, if you would have, if you would have asked me preseason looking at this roster with Eric Rogers, Devaris Daniels, Ricky Collins, Jr., Jawan Breskison, you know, stacked group of receivers they all brought in. You would have looked at this crew and told me Gittins Jr. was going to be the leading receiver. I would have called you crazy coming into the year. So very good uh, find there at receiver. I think uh, running back as well with the likes of DJ Foster. And I think they've found some really good players on defense as well. They unfortunately just could not get it together when it mattered most here in this playoff game. But 
I see good things from this game. And if they can keep this roster together and, you know, a little more experience together, a little more experience for Ryan Dinwiddie as a head coach, I, I think there's good things coming next year, potentially for the Argos. I'm going to say this right now. I know we're not in the business of talking about, you know, award predictions and that, but I would seriously consider giving my vote despite everything that's happened. Uh, for Coach of the Year to Ryan Dinwiddie. Yeah. I mean, new coaching staff, uh, pretty much a new roster, a lot of kind of changes. You, you can make the argument. I'm not saying, that, you know, that'll happen, given the season that Michael Shea and the Blue Bombers had. But if there's an MVP type of coach, which coach is more valuable to his team kind of talk. I think that would be Ryan Dinwiddie just based on nobody really knew who he was as a coach. Everybody knew him as, you know, the quarterback's coach slash offensive coordinator slash whatever role he had in Calgary. This to me was a real, real positive for Ryan Dinwiddie as the coach, and it makes me excited for the future of the Toronto Argonauts. Yeah, I don't know if I'd go that far as coach of the year. I think there were a couple of instances this season you could point to where it's clear he is still a young coach trying to figure things out. I think of clock management in a couple of different scenarios particularly, uh, but I do think it's a good solid year for the Argos to build off of here, and I'm interested to see what the offseason brings for them. Let's talk about Hamilton. They win this game. They're off to the Grey Cup at home. And uh, it looks like it's going to be Dane Evans starting at quarterback against the Bombers in the Grey Cup once again. A bit of a different path to get there this year in the fact that he's been the backup for the past number of weeks. And uh, all of a sudden in this game, Jeremiah Mazzoli goes four of six for 22 yards, doesn't get anything going early in the game. They decide to make the switch. Uh, Dane Evans comes in, goes a perfect 100%, 16 of 16, 249 yards and a touchdown, also added two touchdowns on the ground, a monstrous performance from a bat, a guy listed as a backup quarterback to, I don't, I don't know if I've ever seen a backup come into a game mid game and perform this well. Yeah. It's almost like he caught the quarterback changing flat footed, right? It's like, oh, we prepared so much for Jeremiah Mazzoli, but we don't have an answer for Dane Evans. Now, that being said, I don't think Dane Evans had all that much to lose. Am I shocked they made the quarterback change? Yes. Was it necessary? I'm not sure. But anytime you're down, you know, 12 nothing, and you, and you rally back, um, it's quite remarkable, and they had nothing to lose. Uh, I think this is Orlando Steinauer uh, seeing something in his team, whether that was needing a spark or or something that Dane Evans could bring. Um, but, you know, they weren't getting from Jeremiah Mazzoli. And, and that's why we talked about, you know, the coach having a feel for the game, the coach having a feel for his team. That was Orlando Steinhauer in this game and not necessarily waiting for, you know, the first sign of trouble. It's 
recognizing Butler's trouble, realizing he got a serviceable backup that has proven that he can start games to see 2019 uh, when Mazzoli got hurt and it was Dane Evans' team down the stretch. You know, sometimes coaching is about recognizing what isn't working and fixing it before it becomes a problem. And a coach is knowing his team really well. And I was surprised by the change. Would I have made the change based on what I know? Probably not. But the only one that knows his team the best is the coach. Yeah, and of course, this was, I mean, let's be real here. This was a move Ticats fans, majority of them, from what I've seen on Twitter and Reddit and everything, uh, have been clamoring for Evans to be the starting quarterback for quite a while now already. So they finally got their glimpse, and this, I think, was maybe a bit of an I told you so moment for a lot of people who are now very excited at the prospect of Evans starting in the Grey Cup this weekend. A great performance coming in, and kudos to Orlando Steinar for making that change because, you know, Mazzoli was 4 of 6 for 22 yards, but uh, I don't think he was necessarily having a disastrous start to the game. They just needed to spark, needed to get things going, and Evans did that. And not only did, did Dane Evans do that, but what triggered the full turnaround here for the Ticats was early in the third quarter, a big kick return, punt return touchdown by Poppy White going 92 yards to put the first points on the boards for the Ticats. It seemed like everything just switched momentum-wise from that point on forward. And that's what special teams is all about, right? You get that one big play that can turn the tide of the game either by field position or straight up points. And uh, kudos to Poppy White for that big play there. You know, the Ticats might be the best uh, depth team when it comes to the return position. I think there's no argument Devontae Dedman's the best single returner in the CFL. So Ottawa definitely, you know, has a hand in this conversation there. Uh, but you talk about, you know, their regular return guy, Frankie Williams is so good at it. He's missed a number of weeks. Then you always have Brandon Banks, whose career was literally started as a return specialist and was the best in the league, arguably, at that time. And now Poppy White in a couple of straight weeks has come in and done a real good job there. Ticats have built themselves a very good team, I would say, depth-wise, really at every position. I mean, we talk about quarterbacks, uh, both, you know, both Mazzoli and Evans being very capable starters. We always talk about running backs, how they, you know, have a couple different guys involved each game there, it seems. Receivers, a couple of big ones have stepped up this year. Defensive side of the ball as well. Uh, this is a very deep Ticats team, and I think it's well-deserved that they're going to the Grey Cup this week and you know we we all predicted them to get their preseason did we think it was going to happen the way it did where they started you know oh and two looked like a disaster early on and you know ended up not even clinching first place in the east division no but this is a team now that's won six of its last seven games going into the championship and i think that's the tie cats we expect to see preseason yeah and, and it's, it's it's not you know, all smooth waters and smooth drafts to get to where you want to go. There's a, this is a scenario of it's, it, there's lots of different ways to get to where you want to go. So, get on the Ticats and get on the Bombers for getting to where they wanted to go. Well, let's move on to talk about the West Division final. Uh, this one was uh, a fun one to be at. I know you were there. I was there as well. 
it was a it was cold it was snowy it was windy it was wild and it was fun uh i don't know how cold it ended up getting i know they said the wind chill was supposed to get to like minus 25 by the end of the game and like 70 kilometer an hour north winds um i honestly thought the first half was a little colder than the second half but five hours before the game starts you have uh there were pictures of you know the field being completely covered in snow the wind was crazy um and we were given a very entertaining football game that came down right to the end here. Bombers win 21-17. Your initial thoughts on this game, Mike? Well, my initial thoughts on the, on the first half are a lot different than they were in the second <laughs> half. And uh, football with a half a game, boy, we'd be having a very different conversation right now. But again, much like, uh, you know, Toronto... I, w- I would put Saskatchewan in the same boat as if, you know, it is so difficult to weather aside when you have a team on the rope, such as turning the ball over as many times as they did. I think it was five times in the first half total. Yep. You know, you have to put a team away when you have the opportunity. And a team as good as the Bombers will... If you punched them in the face, it's kind of like that really good fighter, if I can use that analogy. You have a chance to finish off the really good fighter and a chance to uh, win the fight. You better do so while you get an opportunity. Or he'll turn the tables on you in a real hurry, and then you'll find yourself, you know, losing that battle. And, you know, I, I think this is just a credit to... How good this Bomber defense is. Yes, they gave up, you know, 10 points off of those five turnovers. It could have been a whole lot worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, the defense kept them in it. They confused Fajardo. Uh, they limited William Powell to the best of their ability. And, you know, I would dare say that, you know, that emotional game that Saskatchewan played you know, last week against Calgary, kind of wait on them late, later in the game, uh, perhaps. And, you know, there were a lot of guys that were, by all accounts, banged up on Saskatchewan. And, you know, the Bombers just had that killer instinct when it was required, such, such as good teams have. Now, given the weather conditions, many people, myself included, expected this to be a real ground battle in this game, especially, you know, you got William Powell on the riders' side of things, one of the top running backs in the league, and Andrew Harris making his big return for the Bombers after missing, what, five, six games in a row, something like that, uh, or weeks at least, uh, before returning here for the West Final, and it was kind of up in the air until shortly before the game. Uh, yeah, he looked pretty good out there. Uh, 23 carries, 136 yards, and one touchdown uh, on the ground. He also had a catch. Uh, pretty vintage Andrew Harris performance and uh, certainly what you would expect from him. Uh, but the, the most interesting stat line of this game to me, besides the turnover situation, as you would expect with the heavy wind, with the snow, a lot of incompletions and things like that, you know, sloppy quarterback play. Uh, But Zach Caleros completed 17 of 21 passes, 229 yards, one touchdown and three interceptions. 
Quick math there. There was only one Coleros pass the entire game that was not caught by anybody. And it was a short pass to Mike Miller, which may have been the only time he's been thrown to all season. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen a game where almost every pass is completed, but the ones that weren't were almost all interceptions. Yeah, and I think it speaks to, you know, the overall quarterback uh, confidence, if you will, because uh, the weather was not great for throwing. I, I think one would agree with. Um, you know, I had somebody tell me after the game who who was a Saskatchewan Rough Rider fan of some substantiality who said, and I'm paraphrasing, Winnipeg's veteran savvy, having been here before, really, really showed in that football game. They didn't go so far to suggest that the riders were inexperienced, but pretty much stopped short of mentioning you have to learn to walk before you can run as a franchise. And, you know, I, I can't help but agree with that sentiment to an extent. And it's unfortunate, but, you know, the play calling of, of you know, the Saskatchewan defense, I think that Jason Moss and the D coordinator got the best that they could out of this group. And then next year's riders are going to look entirely different than this one because I don't know if you saw their potential list of free agents. Basically, anybody that wasn't a rookie and whose name isn't Cody Fajardo is on that list. And it, it really leads to some questions that I think need to be asked and I don't mean to showboat or gloat or anything, but this is the third straight year that you've gone out to your rivals, twice in your own park and once in theirs. That's not going to sit well with a lot of Saskatchewan Rough Rider fans and a lot of Saskatchewan Rough Riders uh, management. Do I believe that most of their team will come back next year? Absolutely. But this leaves that option to make them that much better in certain positions. Most importantly, I think, being the offensive line and their, you know, defensive blotting, maybe the back half of their defense a little bit, like their DBs. I thought we're a little bit, uh, I don't know what the word would be, soft. But I think one of their their main areas which, of which they need to focus is that offensive line, more particularly depth. Because I think there were guys in roles that they weren't envisioned to be in very early on in the season. And, you know, it, it's it's a learning experience. And... It's a very difficult concept to lose to your rivals in the playoffs three years in a row. It's also just as easy to overreact. So take the dead, work on it, 
every team that doesn't win the championship winds up having a hole of some kind, which they can improve. It's it's not all doom and gloom for the Riders. I think there's a lot to work with, particularly their Canadian receivers. But this is the time for management to shape up the team the way they see fit. And that's the problem with the CFL, is there doesn't appear to be any loyalty to, you know, having a player's jersey long-term because it seems like 90% of the league becomes free agents every year. So it's hard to attach yourself to players. And, you know, maybe Saskatchewan just needs to fix that offensive line, bring back, you know, as much as they can of that team, and try to take another run for it. Well, let me get let, let me give the Riders some credit here. They made this game a a, a battle uh, right down to the end, and uh, they they're a team that that throughout this year, I don't think anybody took seriously enough. I, I know myself included. You know, they a lot of the games even go back to the week before against Calgary. I I took Calgary in that game, and I felt pretty confident in that pick. This is a team that made it to nine and five, second tied for the second best record in the league this year, despite having so many injuries. Go back to training camp, five or six Achilles injuries, all within like one or two days. Um, as much as I mentioned before, how the, the the Argos had a lot of injuries this year, Saskatchewan probably had more. They had a very shaky offensive line on paper, and I think they stepped up in big ways at times this year. I think they, you know, got some some big play from guys we necessarily weren't expecting to see as much this year. And uh, they also brought in some good pieces like Duke Williams, who had the big 67-yard touchdown in this game, put up 108 yards again, another big game for him. I don't know what his future uh, holds for him in the CFL, whether he, you know, comes back to the Riders or goes elsewhere, but that was a good addition there. Uh, they brought this down to the wire, and, you know, the Bombers pull out the four-point win. Saskatchewan's driving Bombers' side of the field late there in the game with about a minute left. And I, as a Bomber fan sitting in the stands, honestly, I'm worried at that point because, yes, Winnipeg's defense has shut things down in the fourth quarter all season long, which they did again here. But I would dare say that I think Cody Fajardo might be the best quarterback in the CFL when it comes to leading a late game winning drive at the, their current points in the career. I think we've, we've seen them do that very effectively time and time again. Go back to the West, the West final. Uh, was it the West final or the West semifinal in 2019? West final at, uh, at Mosaic, um, where he led them down the field and that uh, inevitable crossbar, unfortunately, you know, you know, ended the game there. But gutsy late game play from Fajardo and that's what I love to see from a starting quarterback is somebody who has that composure late in the game um you know yes at times this year his efficiency wasn't there his deep ball you know accuracy wasn't there which a lot has been made of that but I think Fajardo is a guy you build this team around coming into next year still and I think he had a good year and I I I, I gotta give the riders props on the season they had even though they fell short not very many people were giving them a chance coming into this game against the, the the beasts that are the Bombers. And they came very close to pulling out a win and getting a spot in the Grey Cup here. Now, now that I've complimented them, of course, I have to go back to the other side of things and point out 
the, the issues I saw and the reasons that, you know, they aren't in the Grey Cup, which is, A, you mentioned it already, five turnovers. You don't capitalize points-wise uh, effectively enough on those. Uh, with that many, you know, you should the riders should have been able to put this game away if they could have just gotten the, the conversions to touchdowns from those. Um, and then there's the running game, which we've talked about week after week, and we mentioned it as the biggest key for them in this game is use William Powell, utilize the run game, especially in these conditions. He only had 11 carries again. A couple weeks ago, we had like 18 for a couple games in a row, and we were excited about that. But they dropped it back down again. I think this one comes down to play calling for the Riders, arguably the same way it did back in the 2019 game. It comes down to play calling. I think there were several instances where the plays just didn't make sense for them, and they ended up not being able to get the points they needed, and unfortunately, their season ends here. But overall, to me, a solid season for the riders, especially all the adversity they were facing. Yeah, it just seems like I'm not sure. I'm not sure what exactly to make of what you just said. Because it seems like the offense under the previous offensive coordinator was just a little bit more dynamic than the offense we saw under Jason Moss granted all the injuries that the Riders have had. So, like, I don't know what to make of, of, you know, the offensive difference. Like, to me, to me, there wasn't an awful lot that struck a lot of fear the writer offense didn't really scare me to the point of, oh, yeah, they're going to roll up, you know, 30 or 35 points consistently. To me, I had a lot more of a worry with the 2019 offense than I did with the 2021 offense for whatever reason. And, and maybe, maybe that's just because I had high expectations or higher expectations for Jason Moss when it came to working with Cody Fajardo. But to me, there seems to be something about this team not really wanting to force the deep ball. Uh, Cody struggles with the deep ball this year. I, I think that's something he's going to work on in the offseason for sure because he seems motivated by, you know, two conference final losses in 19 and in 21. So, yeah, I'm just not sure what to make of it, given, you know, the new offensive coordinator, which is Dajuan and this year, the protocols, which maybe affected their ability, you know, to do normal work together. I'm, I'm, I'm of the notion that Jason Moss needs to come back with Cody Fajardo as his quarterback, keep some of the pieces around that have been there this year and then see what happens. And it's a big year for the Riders. There's a great cup host next year. There's a lot riding on this offseason and more in particular next season. Now the Winnipeg side of things, this game just nothing was 
everything seemed to be going their way, but nothing seemed to be going their way, especially early on. You had the Bombers driving early, uh, pass from Coleros to the end zone. Somebody's wide open. I think it was Nick Dembski, maybe. It was wide open in the end zone. No defender near him. Uh, oh, ball bounces off his hands, up in the air, intercepted uh, right in the end zone, which is something we've seen multiple times this season, by the way. Coleros uh, is going to go on to win MOP. I, I'm fairly certain of that one. And uh, I, I, I think has had a fantastic season, but it seems he's thrown a couple picks in the end zone uh, this season. And it happened again here. Now, this one by no means is his fault. You can't control it when your receiver bobbles the ball and a defender catches it. But the heartbreak of wide open to wait, what just happened? This was intercepted. Um, was the confusion there. Then Bombers drive again. You have a pass completed to Drew Wolitarski, who is fighting his way to the end zone and fumbles the ball on the one-yard line, which I think this was one that um, the Riders' defense, I forget who it was, took the ball almost all the way back for a touchdown, if not for a fantastic hustle by one Zach Poleros to get back and push him out of bounds. Um, but there were a couple scoring drives early in this game and throughout this game where by all intents and purposes, if the Bombers could have just converted here, the score wouldn't have been close uh, in these situations. But they it seemed like they were shooting themselves in the foot, and we've seen that at times this season. And, you know, offense better be buying the defense some dinner here after uh, making sure they didn't give up points after those turnovers uh, because that the defense kept them in it. The offense ended up doing just enough to pull out the win in this game. And the, and the Bombers go on to play in the Grey Cup for the second consecutive season here, uh, despite those turnovers. I think I saw a crazy stat where this is only like the second time in history a team with a negative four turnover ratio ended up going on to win a playoff game, uh, which is nuts to me. Uh, but the Bombers get away with one here, and now they are off to the Grey Cup to face the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Mike, are you ready to move on to talking about this Grey Cup matchup? Yeah, I'm really excited about this one. This should be quite the fun game. I love that we get a rematch of 2019. On one side of things, you've got the Bombers coming in. Uh, they went 11-3 and in the regular season. 7-0 uh, at home, 4-3 and on the road. Uh Scored the most points in the CFL at 361. Gave up the least points in the CFL by a considerable margin at 188. Uh, on the other side of things, you've got the Ticats, 8-6 and six on the year. 5-2 uh, and two at home, which is where they'll be for the Great Cup. 3-4 and four on the road. Uh, 312 points for, which uh, kind of puts them, I think, middle of the pack here. Um in terms of points scored uh, and points allowed, I believe they are the second best team in the league besides the Bombers. So, uh, and as I mentioned before, winning six of their last seven, pretty good matchup here between these two teams coming in. A lot of people predicted this matchup preseason, um, but it's kind of interesting how these two teams got here because the only other team time Winnipeg and Hamilton played each other this season was all the way back in week number one, where the Bombers uh, won 19 to six. Uh, and many people had Hamilton as favorites coming into that game. And now it's, we've had a whole season worth since then. And I think these teams have shown different things over the past, you know, what are we at 16 weeks or so 
And this makes a very interesting matchup here coming into the finals. Yeah, it's, it's not that often, you know, it's the first and only matchup, let alone game one of the season, the first and last. And I guess we're opening up with uh, Winnipeg and Hamilton again. That's you at the winner of this game, I'm assuming. That would be my assumption at the end. Uh, since the CFL loves these, let's open up with the Grey Cup rematch. But as I recall, this Hamilton team is a lot different than when Winnipeg saw them in week one. I would say Winnipeg is a little bit different than when Hamilton saw them in week one. It sets up the intrigue. Uh, it is a 16-game season. So it's been about 18 or so weeks you know, since these teams have kind of seen each other. You know, a lot can happen in four... Uh, four and a half months. Um, you know, this this to me kind of has the inverse feeling of 2019, you know, feeling to me here. But, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because you could also make the argument, well, despite Hamilton haven't, haven't seen Winnipeg in so long, you could make the argument the other way around. And... To me, this, I know it's a great cup with the states and the magnitude and all that, but to me, this doesn't really feel like all that daunting if you're a, if you're the Blue Bombers, other than the fact of it's just another CFL game on the road because there's, there's no expanded uh, capacity. It's Tim Hortons Field at normal capacity, Still down events, you know, this may actually be less daunting to have, you know, the home team in the Grey Cup than in years past. And I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm off on that, but, you know, despite the Bombers playing Hamilton and Hamilton for the Grey Cup, it just doesn't strike me as much or very difficult of a task outside of the in-game elements compared to in a normal season with the home team being in the Grey Cup. Well, if you think about it, actually, there is going to be less crowd noise potentially in this game than an average home game you go to in Hamilton because so many more fans from across the country come in and buy tickets to the Grey Cup. So everybody makes a big thing about, you know, the home field in the Grey Cup, but realistically, it is less of a home game than it's typically a home game, uh, if that makes any sense. But uh, it's the, the most interesting thing to me about this rematch between these two teams is that two year, well, two things. One, two years in between seasons, a whole year off last year, and it ends up being the two teams repeating. The fact that, you know, they could keep over the course of two off seasons, most of their rosters intact. I think you would agree with me that these were two of the teams that had the least turnover across the two seasons. Most of the rosters intact and to be able to get back to the big game um, is kudos to them for doing so uh, when, you know, there's been a lot of tinkering around the league the last two seasons, so much unpredictability with the year off. That's one thing that's interesting to me, that this is a rematch with a year off in between. The other side of things is 
flipped the script coming into this game from what it was coming into the 2019 Grey Cup. That time, Hamilton, huge heavy favorites. Bombers, the road underdogs after winning two games on the road in the playoffs. Now I would argue it's the other way around. The Bombers have to be the heavy favorites based on the way they've played this year. And the Ticats are the underdogs coming into this game. It's interesting. The tale of two seasons, the tale of two matchups. Yeah, it's the adapt based it inverse of uh, 2019, which, which makes this very interesting. Uh, you know, I read somewhere today, I think it may have been on the Rod Peterson show, uh, Ross Medani was on the show, and he said, and I didn't pick up the exact quote, but I believe he said something to the effect of, it just feels like it's the last run for this for this group of Tiger Cats. And, you know, it's hard not to argue with that, but also in the same sense, is it not, is it not, is it fair, I guess, to say the same thing, you know, about the Blue Bombers as much as there's been continuity? Like, both these teams are taking the team pretty seriously. Both these teams, you, you kind of get the feeling of it's the last run for this kind of poor group of players on both sides. And that's what I think is going to make the elation even that much more meaningful and the heartbreak that much more devastating um, given the fact of you know, what the result is at the end of this game at about 9 o'clock central time on Sunday. I, I was saying the, this to you this week when we were talking about it uh, that you know obviously as a Bombers fan I, I, I'm excited that they're in the Grey Cup again. But I'm really excited the matchup is with Hamilton because I think this is a win-win situation uh, in that, of course, I'm cheering for the Bombers to go on and win this game. But if they don't, the Ticats get the win and they get to end their drought after the Bombers did a couple of years ago, which then brings the crazy statistic of the longest Grey Cup drought uh, actively would be the Montreal Alouettes from 2010. That means all nine teams winning the Grey Cup in an 11-year span including a year where there wasn't a season and uh, including one of the teams being an expansion franchise that didn't even exist back at when Montreal's drought started. The parody in this league is, is kind of nuts in the sense that uh, that's, uh, that could be the situation here. You know, you have some other leagues where there's some teams that, uh, you know, that seems that it's the same teams in the rotation every year and you know, yes, it's a small league. And yes, we've seen some teams in the finals over and over, you know, a healthy dose of Calgary, a healthy dose of Hamilton, but we've still had a rotation of different winners year after year. And that spells parity in the league. And I think that's good for the league that truly coming into the season, it's anybody's game. Yeah, much, much is made, especially of, you know, even 19, when the Bombers went on the road and won two games in the Grey Cup. You know, Hamilton won one on the road and one at home to get here. The lead, the CFL, contrary to what some believe out there, I, I think is better, in better position than some people make it out to be. Is it in great shape? Absolutely not. Could they be in financial hardship? 
Absolutely. But I'm saying the product as a whole, minus the monetary situation, is in a pretty dead spot. If only you could figure out how to energize a bit more offense from your teams. Um, but other than that, I mean, the CFL product, the parity speaks for itself. And I'm very curious to see, you know, how many retirements are coming out of it lead-wide at the end of this. Um, and then who takes those spots? And, you know, for every top-end player that leads the lead, leaves the lead or leaves to go to another team, there's always a replacement that becomes that net star. And and that's what makes the CFL so great as well. Quickly, let's do our usual playoff matchup preview and go offense, defense, and special teams between these two teams. Uh, let's start on the offensive side of the ball. Um, this is a tough one to me. I think both these offenses have some really good things going for them. Uh, you know, Don Jackson's revitalized the run game in Hamilton. Andrew Harris being back is a huge boost for the Bombers. Uh, Dane Evans performed really well last week. Claris is an MOP uh, candidate. I think you've got a great group of receivers on both sides. I'm going to give a slight edge in this one to the Bombers on offense, I think. Uh, mostly, I think it comes down to offensive line. I think they have the best offensive line in the league. Uh, and I, I, other than that though, I would say, you know, it's a pretty even matchup. Yes. There is a bit of concern. Maybe, you know, Dane Evans hasn't played a whole ton this year. So you got to give a bit of an edge, I guess, there to Caleros as well for consistently being at the top of his game this season. Um, so I'll go a bit of an edge to the Bombers, but I think the Ticats have a very good offense as well. How do you see it? Yeah, I see it. Pretty much exactly the same way, except I see the difference being at receiver a little bit. I think Winnipeg is a little bit deeper at receiver. You look at the ball distribution, Wallatarski, Dempsey, the ability to run that fly sweep option, I think, benefits Winnipeg a little bit. The running back, I think, is tilted in Winnipeg's favor. Uh, I just like Winnipeg by a smidgen here. Now, defensive side of the ball, who do you give the edge to there? Oh, boy. I, it's a split to me, really. Yeah. You know, you, you make an argument for both teams. Um, you know, so dead on the D-line, uh, so dead in the DBs. Both teams can pressure the quarterback the way we know. Um, you know. I can't help but think, just cutting back to the offense here for just a minute, that that five turnover Grey Cup game doesn't linger in the mind of Dane Evans a little bit. Uh, Winnipeg, I think, is favored at quarterback, all things being equal. Defensively, I would call it a split, I think, both ways. Uh, both teams have a great pass rush, great defensive line. Uh, some some DBs that can, you know, get off the ball and create some habit. Uh, both teams disguise pressure so dead. I'm going to call the D a split. 
Yeah, I'm going to have to give the edge to Winnipeg just based on what they've done this season and have continued to do, uh, even in the playoff game last week against Saskatchewan. Uh, the, to the Ticats' credit, you know, second uh, lowest points allowed behind the Bombers. I think they have, uh, you know, one of the best run defenses in the league, particularly. And as you mentioned, they've got playmakers at all positions there. Um, so it's certainly not a blowout uh, in on on the defensive side of the ball, but uh, you got to give the nod to the Bombers here. And uh, I'm really intrigued to see the matchup of Dane Evans against this defense in the Grey Cup, uh, because the last time he played them was two years ago in that uh, that 2019 uh, final. So uh, it's crazy that the, you know a, a quarterback can play uh, uh, the same defense with a lot of the same pieces. Back, his back-to-back games are both great cup appearances against them. Uh, kind of an odd situation uh, in that regard. But I'll give a slight edge to the Bombers. Uh, what do you see on special teams here? This, to me, is intriguing. And I'm glad you kind of asked me about this because I think this is the key to the game. Starting field position. Janarian Grant was two steps away from taking a missed field goal bat. We saw that with the return coverage that, um, you, you know, Hamilton had with, with the kick return coverage uh, and the kick return uh, prowess. To me, this is going to come down to field position. Uh, I give the special team's advantage right now to Winnipeg by a smidgen just because I think that the Hamilton kicking game can be a little bit of a question mark. I'm much more comfortable, I think, with Winnipeg's place kicking situation than I would be with Hamilton's at the moment. Um, I'm just not sure about Mark Ladio and the punting situation when it comes to field position. He only had two punts last week, one of which was blocked. And the other one was a, was a placement kick. Um, yeah, so special teams, slight edge to Winnipeg, I think, with the punting, I think, favoring Hamilton just a little bit. It's not that I don't trust Mark Lidio. It's This is a big moment for him. And field position is going to be paramount in this game. That's interesting because to me, that's where I actually maybe give the Bombers a bit of an edge on special teams is the punting game. I think Mark Leggio, for all the struggles he had early on in the season, kicking wise, uh, I think he's mostly done a great job of punting. He's uh, done a really good job of getting those coffin corner punts this season. And I've been very impressed with him there. Uh, I'm going to call this one even though I think Janarian Grant's a great returner. I think Poppy White is as well. Uh, and showed it last week with the big touchdown. And I, I think kicking game, you know, I don't really give an edge one way or the other here. So I'll call it even on special teams. Now we get into our final picks for the game last time this year. Uh, Mike, Winnipeg or Hamilton, who's winning Grey Cup 108? Bombers run the table when I pit the Jets them. I have no reason to do anything different. Hamilton by a field goal. Of course, I figured that was going to be the case. Um, makes sense, and hopefully the luck continues for our sake. 
Uh, I am going to take the Bombers to win this game as well. I do think it's going to be a really tough matchup. I don't think it's going to be a blowout in the sense that 2019 was. And you got to give the Ticats credit. They are a very well-rounded football team. And we could see another game like that West final last week. The Bombers got to capitalize early in this game when they have the chance. They can't turn it over near the end zone. They can't do what Toronto and Montreal did uh, the past two weeks against Hamilton. Uh, and I think they get it done here. And uh, I think, you know, big performance once again in the Grey Cup from one soon-to-be-retired Andrew Harris uh, leads the Bombers to a win here. I'll end it with that. Uh, Bombers win this one by a score, uh, maybe by, I think I said 10 points to you earlier this week. I see that shaping out this way here. And yes, I do think this is the game, especially if the Bombers win. I think I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this is the last game of Andrew Harris's career. I think we saw that a little bit, perhaps uh, a little sign of that in the West final this week. Uh, when, you know, injury timeout late in the game, Harris is running around the end zone, waving to the fans. You have to think maybe that means this is my final game at IG Field. Certainly, you know, he, he, up there in age for a, a typical football age, played uh, very few games this season, missed a lot of time due to injury. If he can go out, win back-to-back great cups, certainly that's got to be how you ride off into the sunset. Yeah, and, and I think, guys, in all seriousness, uh, I, I do think the Bombers are going to win it. It's, it. it's a running joke, but I seem to always think they're going to let us down at the last minute, uh, hence why I keep pitching against them. Uh, this has been a great run, no matter what. I saw a statistic right today where in meaningful games, since November of 2019, the Bombers are something like 16 and one, and 16 and three in their last 19 games. That's just absolutely staggering. When you think about it, and yeah, do what you will with those last two games this season. The one legitimate game the Bombers lost was almost like that Saskatchewan, you know, West Final game. To to me, this run that the Bombers have been on is just remarkable. Win or loss, will I be disappointed if they lose? Absolutely. But it doesn't take away from the great season that Winnipeg had. And... The great season that Hamilton had, they did here. Um, it's just been a great, great, great CFL season in more ways than one, filled with more twists and turns than in a game of snakes and ladders. But, hey, we're here. Enjoy the game. Have a great game. And, yeah, made the best team win. And... I can't wait for the game. That should be so good. Absolutely. Well said. Uh, So that's our final game preview of 2021. Of course, next week we're going to come back and we're going to uh, do our, our great cup recap, our final uh, season wrap up. Then we get into the holiday season. Probably we'll be awake for a couple of weeks there. I've got some ideas of some off season content to come. 
and then of course free agency in February. That's kind of what the schedule looks like for us going forward. Of course, you can check out all of the other great shows from around the Canadian Football Podcast Network as well. And I forgot to mention earlier, the Canadian Football Podcast Network Fantasy League. I played in the semifinals this past weekend, uh, going up against Joe Pritchard from the Rouge, White, and Blue podcast. And unfortunately, uh, my fantasy season has come to an end. I did lose by eight points. Thank you, Jeremiah Mazzoli. Uh, yes, of course, Mazzoli getting pulled early in that game ended up screwing over my week of fantasy football. I uh, tried to salvage it late. Uh, I dropped, uh, I had Jamal Morrow and Keon Schaefer Baker, dropped them both, put Andrew Harris in my lineup and fell just eight points short. But kudos to Joe for winning the matchup. And he goes on to the finals to take on uh, Andrew from the Turf District. So make sure you check out uh, Rouge, White, and Blue, the Turf District, and all the other great shows from around the Canadian Football Podcast Network. And uh, we'll see which of them takes home the coveted uh, championship belt uh, for the second season of what's been a really fun fantasy league with the other hosts from around the network. Mike, before we close things off here, anything you want to mention or plug? And where can people find everything you've got going on? Well, Enjoy the game, everybody. Keep tabs on my game time TV stuff. Thank you very, very much uh, for the support to date. I know there's people that I hear from uh, that I think get my information from the podcast as far as how to find my channel. So that is much appreciated, everybody. And uh, the last thing I'll leave you with is uh, you can find me on Twitter at MyTarot. All my game time stuff at gametimetv.ca. And the last thing that's been that's left to say is enjoy the game. It's going to be a dead one. Well said, my friend. Uh, for my stuff, you can find me on Twitter at coopertrooper42. If you're interested in CFL fantasy talk, even including this week for the Grey Cup, uh, check out on YouTube the Canadian Football Fantasy Fix. I go through uh, all the options uh, at each position and go through depth chart breakdowns, all of that each and every week to help you set your fantasy lineup. While this season of CFL Fantasy is, of course, coming to a close as well, got lots of fun content planned in the offseason. A couple things I'm planning to work on uh, to hit the ground running coming into next year, and there will be updates on that along the way. So check out Canadian Football Fantasy Fix on YouTube. And follow me on Twitter at CooperTrooper42 to get all the latest updates on that. Of course, for our show, you can find us on Twitter at CFC on Mike FM. You can find us on Facebook as well. Uh, whatever uh, podcast platform you're listening on, uh, subscribe, follow, comment, like, review, rating, all those fun things. Uh, share the show with your friends. Uh, tell them we say hi. And uh, make sure you check out all the other great shows from around the Canadian Football Podcast Network as well at CF Pod Network on Twitter. It's been a fantastic season of the CFL. We're so happy it came back this year. It's been a great year. So much fun to talk about here on the podcast. And looking forward to the big game this weekend. We hope you all enjoy it. We'll talk to you next week when we recap and uh, talk about the winner of Great Cup 108. As always, for Michael Garrell, I'm Ryan Coop saying thank you for listening. Take care. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.